Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzevin, and I'm joined today by my wonderful co-hosts, Dan Seligson and Ashley Jacobs. Hello, friends. Hi, Miriam. Hi, Dan. What's up, Ashley? Hey, Miriam. You know, in our time producing the Vibe of the Tribe, we have always sought the answers to questions about Judaism and Jewish life. Some of our episodes have asked fun questions about Jewishness and pop culture. Others have dealt with deep existential questions, how to combat anti-Semitism, the impact of intermarriage on Jewish continuity, what Judaism says about gender identity, Israel, art, and creativity, and peoplehood, and ritual, diaspora, death, and the afterlife. Making this show has been an experience that gave us so many answers to our own questions and encouraged us to ask new ones. Recently, we asked our listeners and members of the community to submit their own questions about Judaism. And on this episode, Rabbi Vanessa Harper of Temple Beth Elohim and Wellesley will answer them. But first, an announcement. The Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com is going on a hiatus. It's been a true joy to share these episodes as we learned along with you. Our wish is that this podcast and wonderful, knowledgeable experts like Rabbi Harper will continue to inspire you to learn more about the incredible diversity and array of Jewish culture, heritage, and history that connects us all as one people. Rabbi Vanessa Harper, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. As we mentioned in the introduction, we have with us a list submitted by the audience about Judaism and Jewish life. We're excited to ask you these questions and to get your answers. But before we get to those questions, we'd first love to know how you decided to become a rabbi and what excites you about the work you do as rabbi educator at Temple Beth Elohim here in Wellesley. Well, Ashley, you just let off with possibly the hardest question. <laughs> um, <laughs> my path to becoming a rabbi, as with actually I think many rabbis, wasn't exactly a straight path. It was a little wiggly at times. I went through kind of a whole host of things that I I wanted to do at various points in my life. I, when I went through college, I first, I wanted to be a philosopher. And then I was like, no, I'm going to be an English professor. Then I thought I was going to be a baker. That kind of sort of came true. Um, then I was going to be a professor of Jewish studies. And as I was getting ready to graduate, I had a, a really important mentor in my life who said, Vanessa, you really, you want to be doing work in the Jewish community. You want to do work that has an impact. I want you to go find a job in the community first then if you decide you don't like it, you can go and do a PhD. So I was like, okay, sure, fine. So I started my work in Washington, D.C. as a Jewish educator. I had been teaching for a long time. This was my first full-time job in the community, and I fell in love with the work. I knew that that's, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a Jewish educator. I did that work for a while, and then another great mentor in my life said, you know, Vanessa, you really should go to rabbinical school if you want to be the best educator you can be. And I was a little resistant to that at first, but I did go to rabbinical school. It did make me a better Jewish educator. And now here I am. I get to do amazing work. And I'm really lucky to be in two fantastic institutions here in the Boston area. I work for Temple Beth Elohim as a rabbi educator here. So that means I get to do all the great rabbi things. I get to give sermons. I get to be with people in, in moments of joy and moments of hardship. 
and I get to teach here. I mostly work with our middle and high schoolers. And then also I get to work at GAN Academy, which is a pluralistic uh, community high school here in, in the Boston area. Um, and I get to be on the Jewish studies faculty. I get to teach really cool classes. So my days are filled with Jewish learning and teaching, and I'm very, very happy to be here. And you just mentioned that you actually did become a baker in some way, and I just want to give a shout out to you and, and tell everybody to go check out Lech Lechala on Instagram, because what Rabbi Harper does, it's really, really fascinating. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's such an arty, creative, delicious way to do that <laughs> Jewish education. So can you just tell us briefly about that Instagram that yeah. you have? Absolutely. So four years ago at this point, which feels like an awfully long time ago, I started this project completely by accident. One day I brought a rainbow challah to a, a class Shabbaton in rabbinical school. It happened to be the week that we read Parshat Noah and we, we get the rainbow in the story, the sign of God's covenant. And so I made this rainbow challah and everyone's like, whoa, Nessa, do you match your challah to the portion every week? And me being a crazy person was like, yeah, that's a thing that I do. Spoiler alert, it was not a thing that I did, but it became a thing that I did. And so I made it through the whole first year um, and I was posting the images to Instagram with a little bit of commentary and people were really excited about it. So I did another year. We went through the holiday cycle and started working on a book. The book will be published in 2022 under the title Loves of Torah, exploring oh the Jewish year through the art of challah. Mazel tov. Um, yeah, thank you. So, uh, so keep an eye out. And uh, it's been a really fun project. I've been able to teach all over the country virtually in the last year, kind of just sharing this idea that we can we can learn and study Torah through all kinds of different languages. For me, that language happens to be challah. And for other people, it might be like decorative hummus swirling. I don't know. But the <laughs> idea is just to inspire people to to take Torah into their own hands, literally. We all have the we all have the ability and we all have the responsibility in a way to to make Torah our own and to engage in that study in a way that's exciting for us. Well, creative Torah is something that we absolutely love. And it's one of the reasons that we were like, oh, we are excited to speak with you. Um, oh, thank you. So, so, yes, you are the qualified individual. So let's get into these questions submitted by the audience. And actually, the first one has something to do with the Parsha. So the question is. Jews read a portion of the Torah each week called the Parsha. What is the significance of this practice? And do you have a favorite? Oh, okay. The favorite is also a hard question. Oh, yeah. Um, but let's, let's maybe start a little bit like, why do we do this? What's the idea? So all the way as early as in the Torah itself, we learn that we're supposed to publicly read sections of this book out loud. At that time, it was every seven years. Over time, that practice kind of fell by the wayside and then it would be reinstituted. The prophet Ezra is really famous for, for his moment of reinstituting public reading of Torah. And this idea of reading through the whole Torah publicly didn't start until somewhere around like the sixth century or so. Um, but at that time, to get through the whole Torah, they're like, this is a whole lot of text. So it was actually a three-year cycle. It's now called the triennial cycle. So they'd read like a little, like a third of each section, um, and it would take a whole year. So about a century later, the Jews of Babylonia, which was one of the other like major centers of Jewish life at that time, were like, no, no, we can do better than this. Uh, we're going to do the whole Torah in one year. And so that's how we get the system we have today with 54 Torah portions, um, which you're, you're right, there are 
52 weeks in the year, but there are 54 portions. Sometimes we double them up depending on how the calendar falls, etc. But the idea is this book is really important to us and we want to be able to hear its words read aloud um, every single every single year. And so the question of a favorite, that's really hard for me. I think I'm gonna, I have two favorites. I have two favorites. My first is Brayshit, which is the very first Torah portion. We get the story, the two stories of creation, um, as well as lots of other stuff. I could, I feel like I could teach on that Torah portion every single week of the year. I love it. My other favorite is Yitro, mm. which is when the Israelites get the, the Ten Commandments are all gathered around Sinai and like the big moment. Um, there's a lot of drama. I like the drama. There's a lot so, of drama. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons I was so excited to speak with you today is because, well, A, I love puns, Merriman, I love puns, but Lech Lecha was actually my Torah portion at my bat mitzvah, and it was my dad's uh, Torah portion at his bar mitzvah as well, and he still reads it in shul. So that kind of led me to this question of how was the B'nai mitzvah process even established? Why boys at 13, girls at 12? Why do we lead services, et cetera? This one also has roots way back in the day. So why why 12 and 13? What's that about? That comes from the the rabbis a really long time ago determined that these were the ages on which at which puberty begins, but also that kind of like maturity in some level or another. Um, and they determined that for girls that was 12, for boys that was 13. So that's why in some communities um, a bat mitzvah for a girl is at 12, a bar mitzvah for a boy is at 13. In many communities today, it's 13 for everybody, regardless. And so one of those things that I also, when I'm working with, with the mitzvah students, we call them the mitzvah students in our community. When I'm working with students who are approaching stage, you're like, I'm, I'm 12. Like, <laughs> I'm not an adult. What's this about? Um, but it's really, it's about the, the legal age for taking on Jewish responsibility. Basically the idea, this is the point at which like, you are responsible for your own mitzvot, your own commandments. Somewhere back in the Middle Ages, they came up with the idea of having this ceremony where some of those new legal responsibilities and rights, uh, you got to practice in front of people. So getting to lead a service, getting to read from the Torah, reading from the Haftarah, the prophets, um, and giving a Devar Torah, a short sermon. Um, also, a big part of that was that the parent got to recite a special blessing that was basically like, thanks God for not making me responsible for this kid's mitzvot anymore. <laughs> um, and then they had a big old party at the end. So that's, that's where it comes from. And also just fun fact, the first bat mitzvah ceremony didn't happen until about 1921, we think. It was uh, Judith Kaplan, who was the daughter of Mordechai Kaplan, the founder of the Reconstructionist Movement, which set up, which just caught on and everyone was very excited about it. And so the other liberal movements picked that up shortly thereafter. Wow. So that's where it comes from. Wow. So at Zoom Yom Kippur services this year, my mom turned to me and asked a pretty profound question. Where do Jewish prayers come from? Who wrote them? And on top of that, why are there so many different kinds of services? And what are they? Wow. Big question. Big question. (laughs) A lot of questions. Good, good. Okay. So let's start with where Jewish prayers come from. There's a whole bunch of places. So the, the Jewish prayer book, the Siddur, it's kind of like my teacher, uh, Rabbi Dr. Larry Hoffman says, it's like the, the diary of the Jewish people. We're getting pieces from all across Jewish history, all kinds of things that Jews have 
fought and wrestled with. And it's all together in this book. It's really, it's really an amazing thing. So some of the earliest things we have in our prayer book are Psalms, which is biblical poetry. We find it in Tanakh. And some of those are, are part of our liturgy. We also get prayers that started to be built during rabbinic times, so the early rabbinic era. Most of these prayers started out as themes. They're like, okay, so first we're going to have a prayer that's kind of talking about creation. Then we're going to have a prayer that's talking about revelation. And then we're going to get to, we're going to put the Shema in there. So they would go by themes, but the prayer leader would actually kind of improvise on the theme. Eventually over time, they kind of were like, okay, this was a really nice one. Let's keep that. Um, and they would get set. And so that's how we end up with the, the fixed prayers that are in our Sidor today. And most of those were set somewhere around the ninth century with a leader in the Jewish community who kind of wrote the first Sidor, the first prayer book. And so that's when many of these prayers were set. There are also in the prayer book things called Piyutim, which are Jewish liturgical poetry. Some of them are pretty fancy. The most, probably the most well-known is L'Chadudi, which is sung during Kabbalat Shabbat, welcoming in the Sabbath. So that's, that's a Piyut. And why do we have all these different services? Where do they come from? Well, going way back, there are kind of two, two main ideas. The big one is the services were established basically at the same times that the sacrificial services would have happened according to what was written in the Torah. So if you've flipped through the Torah at some point, you might notice there's a whole lot of sacrificing and only a little bit of praying because prayer wasn't really a thing yet. Sacrifice was the main way that we worshiped. And once the temple was destroyed and we were no longer offering sacrifices, words came to replace animals, essentially. <laughs> so um, prayers became the new sacrifice. And so prayer services were instituted at the same time the sacrificial services would have been. So that's morning, shacharit, afternoon, mincha, evening, mariv. And on Shabbat and holidays, there's musaf, which is basically an extra service that comes um, after shacharit. And so there's also a tradition of kind of matching these up to the different patriarchs who would establish the different types of prayer. Um, that's kind of another conversation, but that's the, the big picture of where things come from. Once we get into the high holidays, that's like another creature. Um, but the times of the services are about the same. Uh, we do have extra fancy liturgy for the high holidays, but that's the, the big overall picture. Thank you. And if, if anyone out there is doing Dafyomi, like I am a, a page of Talmud a day, we're right now, well, actually we're, we just went through a part all about the holidays and, and talked a lot about sacrifices when you give them, what they stand for, and transitioning that into figuring out how to do that on a mobile basis with prayer once, as you said, the temple was destroyed. So it's very, very fascinating. And this is something that the rabbis have been discussing since forever. <laughs> um, Absolutely. It's really, really interesting stuff. So our, our next question is... And this, you know, there's a lot of aspects to this. What's the difference between these movements, Reform, Conservative, Orthodox, Hasidic, Haredi, uh, Reconstructionist, Renewal, as you just mentioned? I know there's a lot to it, but give us a, a basic idea of what the differences are here. Okay, so this, <laughs> this is a question where, like, uh, as you just said, it, it's not a simple one. There isn't a simple answer. And I'm pretty sure that I'm going to put myself in hot water with almost any answer that I give. So I say this, take everything I say with a huge humongous pinch of salt. I will take responsibility <laughs> on behalf of Rabbi Harper. Anything she said, it's really on me. So please feel free to give your true and honest take. Okay. So when we think about the, the contemporary movements, movements are really are a relatively recent phenomenon in Jewish history. 
the first of the movements was the reform movement, which was founded in about 1800. And the other movements kind of came as a response. So everyone kind of like carving out their own space in the Jewish world based on the way that they wanted to practice, based on their views on what prayer should be, what it should look like, theological differences, the relationship to halakha, to Jewish law, all of these things. And so we also, we have all these movements. We also have different cultural streams of Judaism, like Ashkenazi Judaism, Sephardi, Mizrahi, Yemenite, all of these. So like, that's also going to have an effect that's going to interplay with the way that some of these things look in terms of practice. So all of this is very general and people within each of these movements are going to practice differently. But so I would say we can kind of make some big divisions based on, first of all, let's say halachic and non-halachic. So when I say halakha, I mean Jewish law. Um, and so different movements have different relationships to what Jewish law means for them. So orthodox movements, which would include modern orthodoxy and uh, Hasidism and Haredi Jews, we might say ultra-orthodox Jews, that kind of big bucket um, would say that rabbinic law, halakha, is binding on everybody. And that's worth looking at law coming from the Talmud, from the Shulchan Aruch, all of these kinds of um, big canonical legal documents. Conservative Jews are kind of in a little bit of a, a middle spot here. It is a halakhic movement, but conservative halakha is kind of decided by a different process. So it depends on who you ask, where they, which side <laughs> of the line they would fall on. Um, and then you have the movements that are that have a different relationship to halakha, so that reform, reconstructionist renewal, where within you're going to get different practices for different people. But in general, halakha isn't seen as uh, binding in the same way, where it gets more of a like a vote, not a veto. So that's that's kind of one set of divisions. Another is kind of around gender egalitarianism, so kind of left-wing orthodoxy and, and more liberal. You will get more women, women's roles within the community can be more expansive. There's also big theological differences, which are unique to every movement and would take an entire episode, I think, to unpack. So <laughs> big time, big time. Yeah. And then prayer and practice is where you're really going to see most of the differences between the movements. When you walk into a synagogue for Shabbat, that's, I think, where you're going to see most of the practical differences. So between the kinds of prayer books that are used, are there slight changes to the prayers for gendered reasons or for different views on God, whatever that might be? Are there not changes to prayers because prayers are fixed and we don't change them? Um, all of that's going to come from these kind of movement-based decisions. Um, and yeah, different modes of prayer, styles of holiday observance, what Shabbat looks like, that's going to vary from movement to movement and also from person to person. When I was growing up, I heard that because I grew up in the conservative movement. And what I heard was that you can tell if something's like reform, conservative or orthodox based on the ratio of Hebrew to English <laughs> in the prayers. So that's kind of like the gauge that I grew up with. <laughs> yeah, which which makes sense. And also even within just the reform movement. So I'm a reform rabbi. Even within the reform movement, there's a huge spectrum of ratio of Hebrew to English within a service, really depending on the community. Um, so that's why I say like all of this with a huge grain of salt, because each place is going to it's going to just do it a little bit differently. Definitely. So let's talk about Kabbalah. What is it? What is its relationship to Judaism? And why are celebrities so obsessed with it? <laughs> so I have to tell you, I, I went to I phoned a friend on this one. I went to my content expert, also a local rabbi, Rabbi Andrew Oberstein, who he knows this better than me. So I, I asked him and this is what he reported back to me. So Kabbalah, let's talk about that first. Kabbalah is a, a Jewish mystical practice, which has its roots way, way, way back. It's quite cool. It's really complicated. One of the central texts of 
Kabbalistic tradition is the Zohar, uh, which is a notoriously challenging text to unpack. And back in the day, they said you couldn't start studying it until you were a 40-year-old married man who like really knew their stuff. So that's Kabbalah. When we're talking like legit Kabbalah. You really had to have um, everything together in your life before approaching yes. this. <laughs> Absolutely. That's Kabbalah. It is, it is an authentic piece of Jewish tradition. We have elements of Kabbalah that have, that have made its way throughout all of Jewish practice, especially throughout the prayer book. But then when we look at Kabbalah, I'm using a different pronunciation intentionally, Kabbalah in terms of like the, the celebrity version, that's usually kind of tracing its way back to like the Kabbalah Center, whose mission has been to kind of disperse that Jewish wisdom to the widest possible audience, which involved dissociating it from organized Judaism and repackaging it as kind of like broad spiritual self-helpy system. And so that's why celebrities are really into it because it's really positive and trendy and like very accessible for everybody. So it's been kind of changed a little bit from its <laughs> its essential version, but like it's cool. And Madonna did it. Madonna's awesome. So it makes sense. <laughs> I can see how they got there. And also when you look at a large part of the Hasidic movement is so heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by Kabbalistic thinking and beliefs. And then you have this other version that's more, it's quite a dichotomy. It is quite interesting, Indeed. but it's really, really riveting stuff and really can deepen somebody's understanding of Jewish uh, thinking, his history, and how peoplehood has sort of embraced this mystical aspect, which, which I love. So I encourage everybody to go out and learn more. Um, so let's go to our next question, which is, why do Jews shield our eyes while reciting the prayer over Shabbat candles and while reciting the Shema? Oh, I love that question. So for both of these, they, it has a, a similar root. Mm -hmm. So the practice of shielding, covering one's eyes while saying the Shema, it comes from the Talmud in Brachot. Um, and the idea is that by covering your eyes, you are able to really, really concentrate on the words. It's such a short little prayer. And it's so important that we really have to be able to dig deep and be connected. And so part of the idea by covering our eyes, we're shutting out all the distractions and just reminding ourselves it's important to concentrate on this prayer. For candles, we also kind of have this idea of it's important to concentrate in this moment. This is a it's a holy moment, an opportunity for for prayers to be to be heard at an extra level in some traditions. And there's also a practical element to it too. So when the idea of lighting candles for Shabbat came about, this there was kind of a debate around the idea of like, well, okay, if we're lighting fires on to bring in Shabbat, that's a little tricky because we're not allowed to light fires on Shabbat. Um, but we want, and by lighting the candles, we're acknowledging that Shabbat has entered. So how do we kind of get around this problem? So the idea is you light the candles, cover your eyes, say the blessing, and then you open your eyes and you're like, oh, hey, look, the candles are lit. That's pretty cool. Um, so it just kind of creates like a little bit of separation um, so that those things are, so that there isn't this kind of issue of, uh, oops, we lit fire on Shabbat. It's an and amazingly creative workaround. So here's a question many people have. Why do some menorahs have nine branches and some seven? Ah, so a... So this is like a square rectangle question. So a menorah can have seven or nine branches. A Hanukkah is nine branches. So a menorah that we light for Hanukkah, we need nine spaces because we have eight nights, one candle to help light the rest of them. So we need nine branches. That is a Hanukkah. A menorah with seven branches is one that's actually looking back um, at the menorah that was established for the 
for both the temple and the, the Mishkan, so the pre-temple that traveled around. So there was a menorah that was always kept lit, and that had seven branches. So that seven-branch menorah is a symbol of the Jewish people. We see it on Israeli like state emblems all over the place. It's actually a really powerful and old symbol of the Jewish people, um, but it has a practical difference. So the one we use for the holiday of Hanukkah, nine branches, um, because of the number of nights. But they're both menorahs, menorot. And if anyone's interested, look at photos of the Arch of Titus, which shows the 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 original, <laughs> the seven-branched yeah. version, the original flavor. It's very interesting. Historically, it shows it being taken away, obviously, from Jerusalem, which is a sad story, yet we're all here. So it's a fascinating historical thing to look at. I will include a link in the pod description. So let's now move on to our next question, which also is about ritual objects, although of a slightly different type. What is the meaning behind the knots in ritual garments like talit or tzitzit, talit being um, what people can drape over themselves while praying and tzitzit being sort of an undershirt that people can wear that have these strings and knots? Oh, I love this question. I'm really into ritual objects, so this, this is exciting. So, so, right, we have these kind of two different options. The tzitzit are the, the fringy parts on both the talit gadol, the big one that gets draped, or the tzitzit or talit katan, the tiny one that you can wear under your clothing. But the tzitzit are the, the four ritual fringes that are attached to the corners of the garments. And so this comes from numbers originally. We also get a repeat in Deuteronomy. Um, and we recited in the Vehafta as well, this commandment to attach fringes to the four corners of our garments. Since most of our garments these days don't have four corners, we had to make new four-cornered garments. Hence, we have the talit. So the big idea behind the tzitzit is that they're a physical reminder of the mitzvot, the commandments. So you see them and you're like, ah, oh, yes, I have to do the mitzvot today. It's just, you know, it's kind of like tying a string around your finger. And so then when we look at the, the patterns for the knots and the wraps in between the knots, there are a couple of different ways of doing that depending on kind of your own tradition that you come from. And so those different patterns of knots and wraps each have their own different uh, levels of significance. So most of them comes from doing some fancy math and with something called gematria, where numbers are equivalent to, to the different letters of the Jewish alphabet, and you can kind of like make words and add up to different numbers. And so the standard Ashkenazi tying style is you get two knots, seven wraps, two knots, eight wraps, two, 11, two, 13. And so with some very fancy math, you can consult Rashi for this, you can get to the number 613, which is the number of mitzvot in the Torah. So if the idea is it's reminding us, do the mitzvot, great, very cool. Um, my other personal favorite is a Sephardi tying style, where the number of wraps is 10, 5, 6, 5. And the gematria of those numbers corresponds to the four-letter name of God, which I think is pretty cool. That's also very similar in a way to wearing tefillin, which if you are not familiar with, there's a box on your forehead and your arm that you bind with special leather straps. And within those boxes are prayers, including uh, the long form of the Shema, where in fact it tells you to do that. Those also have a special way of wrapping to form letters. Is that correct? And is yes. that kind of a similar aesthetic ritual communication <laughs> method? Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes. So there's one pattern um, that I, I particularly like where you end up with the letters Shin, Dalid, and Yun. So they can all be on your hand or on your arm. 
but the Shin Dalit and Yod is Shaddai, which is one of God's names. And so, yes, there are different kind of wrapping patterns. One of the, a friend of mine once said that to fill, wearing to fill in is kind of like, it's like a Wi-Fi router. It's just like extra divine Wi-Fi connection, <laughs> like just to kind of channel. But yeah, having these physical objects like, like to fill in, like Talit, it's, it's a way of kind of making the sacred tangible, which I think is yeah. really powerful. Yeah. And it's something something really cool that Judaism has to offer that of course we see in other traditions, but it's one of the things I really like to lean into because we are embodied people. Our bodies are part of our our spirituality and our worship and all of those kind of things. And so there are just extra ways to help us connect. I love that. I love that too. There are so many different types of Jewish quote unquote holy scripture. Uh, the Torah, the Talmud, we mentioned the Zohar, you mentioned earlier the Shulchan Aruch. What are they respectively? What is their relationship to each other as well? Let's see. <laughs> so um, which of these kind of falls under the category of sacred or holy will kind of change a little bit by movement um, in general. Tanakh is, is our unifying sacred canon, which is sometimes called the written law. Tanakh uh, is an acronym, actually. It has three parts, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So Torah is the five books of Moses. Nevi'im are the prophets and Ketuvim are the writings. So that includes things like Job and Psalms, uh, Ruth, those kinds of things. So um, Tanakh is, is the, the sacred canon um, written law. Coming out of Tanakh, after that canon has been closed, we end up with mostly legal literature um, coming after that. So the Mishnah is the first next like big piece, which was kind of closed, canonized around 200 CE or so. Um, and so those are the early rabbis takes on, they're looking at Torah, particularly Torah, but they're looking at all of Tanakh and they're pulling out um, what, are the, what are the ways that we need to be and act in the world based on this set of law that we have. And so they kind of do the first round of applying Torah to life and spinning it out into halakha and Jewish law. So that's Mishnah. The Talmud is built off of the Mishnah, and it's just more conversations for the next couple of generations. And so it goes from being like a sixth order thing to this like ginormous 22 volume version for the Babylonian Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud's a little bit smaller. That was canonized a little earlier. So the Babylonian Talmud that closed around 600-ish in the Common Era. And those are the foundation of kind of the main legal canon, the oral law. So. There's also kind of a category of Midrash, which has its origins in the mission and other writings from that time. And they're compiled in, in other works. Um, and the, that Midrash can be narrative or it can be legal. So it's also expanding on Tanakh. Everything kind of goes back to Tanakh as much as possible. And then, again, all of these things kind of over time, as more, more rabbis came and turned it and turned it and talked about it and studied it and applied it to life as, as circumstances in the world would change, the law needed to be adapted to it to say like, okay, now how does it apply here? Um, so all of that would begin to expand. We get to law codes, um, particularly famous ones, Maimonides, Mishnah Torah, later the Shulchan Aruch, Joseph Haro. And so those are, those are trying to like distill all of that earlier legal writing um, into something that's easy to access and understand and look up. Um, we also get the Zohar, mystical texts, um, the Sidor, which we talked about earlier, lots of commentary and philosophy. The Jewish bookshelf is absolutely enormous. Um, and what you consider holy or sacred within that scripture 
will change from person to person a little bit, but these are the big pieces of our bookshelf that we that we come back to as a whole community. Wow. I love the idea that they had to make the, the Shulchan Aruch because you, you really can't look it up so easy in the Talmud. I can tell this because <laughs> I'm two years into my seven and a half year process of Daf Yomi and um, an abridged version with just not the entirety of everyone's conversations because that's really what the Talmud is, um, but just sort of breaking it down what to yeah. do. It makes it a little bit easier. I kind of like the spark notes. Yes, exactly. I've never even heard of that. What is the Shulchan Aruch? The Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch. The Death Table. Um, which ah, was, yeah, basically very, very smart rabbi. Yosef Karo was like, okay, the people need to just be able to have something we can access because, y'all, there's a lot of law. Not everyone has time to study it all day. So here we go. Um, and that's still kind of the, the big formative um, law code that we still go back to. This was written in like the uh, 16th century. Mm -hmm. And that it's still the foundation for a lot of legal work that comes today. When wow. I when I was living as an Orthodox person um, on on our shelf was the Shulchan Aruch and the kids are Shulchan Aruch, which is like the even even easier, even less shorter version. shorter version. But it's more it's a more practical guide. And you would see it on the bookshelves of those who who consider themselves Orthodox in that way. Interesting. Yeah. So our next question, what <laughs> makes food kosher or not kosher? So again, a couple steps to this one. So as with all things, we go back to the Torah. That's where we get the first set of dietary laws. So we get some kinds of animals that are permitted to eat and some that are not permitted to eat. So if they're in that latter category, not permitted, automatic, not kosher stand. We also get the foundations of the, the idea of not mixing milk products and meat products. And so that's the, the law, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And that's been interpreted in different ways by different people. But the main thing is it, it did uh, evolve into a rabbinic law that we aren't supposed to have meat and dairy products in the same meal. So those are kind of two of the really big cornerstones of kashrut, of keeping kosher. There are certain foods we don't eat. So that includes pork, shellfish, that kind of thing. Um, fish that don't have fins and scales, creatures that don't, that have a, they need to have a split hoof and chew their cud. So that's one category. And then also not having milk and meat at the same time. Different traditions will have different wait times between those, between those kinds of meals as well. At six hours so, or three, um, it depends. Exactly. Or 30 minutes or right. different or not. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. Um, exactly. So, and then there's another element, which is for meat, um, it has to be, the animal has to be slaughtered in a particular way by someone who knows the law really well, a shochet, a, a, um, a slaughterer, essentially. And so that's another piece. So to have, you can have um, cow is a kosher animal, but if it hasn't been slaughtered the right way, and if it's the wrong part of the cow, then it can still be non-kosher meat. So that's another piece of it. We also have another set of rules about Passover kashrut, which is another creature which is involving the, the kinds of grains that can't be eaten and protecting against the possibility of fermentation or leavening. And for Ashkenazi Jews, that also includes kidney oats, so that's like legumes and rice. So that's another category of kosher. And the other thing that we think of today when we think of kosher or not kosher is a heksher. So it's like a little symbol that you'll find often on packaged foods. Certain restaurants will carry a heksher. And that means that there's a rabbi who's making sure that all the food is up to a certain standard of kashrut. And so that's why we have so many different symbols. It's different 
different bodies that do that certification. And that's kind of an innovation of our big global mass market food world that we live in now. <laughs> you can't, you don't, you can't just like, you know, walk down the street and be like, Rabbi, kosher. You don't know the butcher personally. So that's kind of where the, the system of having textures came about. And then fun bonus for like modern times, one of the other kinds of kosher people think about is eco-kosher, thinking about what are the other kinds of values that we want to consider with the food that we eat? Is it coming from, is it coming from a local source? Is it being produced in a way that's sustainable? And so that's kind of another category of applying our values to, to our daily food choices. Wow. So the next one is a favorite question of mine, um, just personally, because I know a little bit about it, but I'd, I'd love to hear your opinion and your perception. The question is, why do so many Jews cover their heads, kippot, wigs, scarves, etc.? And what are some of the things you can tell about a Jewish person by the style of their head covering? Another big, complicated question. Um, so, okay. Let's do the big, so big ideas first. This is traditionally a gendered kind of question. So for women, head coverings traditionally come around customs and laws surrounding the idea of modesty or tenute, um, and generally kick in once a person has been married. Historically, maybe not, but certainly today, that's true. So like women who cover their heads, usually uh, you're saying you're from a more traditional community, have certain views on, on modesty, and usually means that the person is married. Those kinds of head coverings could be scarves, headbands, wigs, hats, even kippot. And so that's kind of one category. Traditionally gendered male head coverings. Uh, this started as a custom, not really a law, but took on the force of law over time because it was just so prevalent. Um, so the idea being that you covered your head, especially when you're doing like Jewish things like praying or studying or whatever it might be, as a sign of respect and piety and especially as an acknowledgement of God's presence. So if uh, we kind of think of like the idea of God being above a person, you have a head covering as like a, a sign of that respect and a reminder for yourself. So those are kind of the two gendery pieces. There's also an identity element of all of this. So the kippah or the, the yarmulke, depending on how you pronounce it, is a really well-known symbol of Jewish identity at this point in time for outside of the Jewish community as well. Um, and women's head coverings, like scarves and headbands and wigs, again, um, they also serve as identity symbols, both if you know what you're looking for, signifying the person's Jewish, and also, again, more in the know, being part of a particular community within the Jewish tradition with its own interpretations of rules around head coverings. So also on the, the male head covering side, different kinds of kippot, so the, the color, the material, all of the, the way it's on your head, is it also covered with a hat? Uh, all of that kind of stuff can, can indicate one's religious inclinations or group affiliations as well. And so all of that, I'm not going to be able to give you like a field guide of like, okay, you see this kind of person wearing this thing, because it, it's a lot. <laughs> but, um, and the signs aren't always, they're not always consistent. But um, I will say this, so as I'm a, I'm a woman who wears a kippah, um, so I'm used to getting confused looks sometimes. And so I'll say that the best thing to do if you're looking at someone's headgear and you're like, hmm, I have questions about this. The best thing you can do is just strike up a conversation. If you want to learn more, just ask your questions from a place of kindness and curiosity and listen with openness and with respect for folks' desire for privacy if they're not into sharing. But that's really going to be the best way to learn. Just ask with kindness and love. 
And speaking of asking questions, like, you know, just about Judaism and people's, you know, practices, what is the process of converting to Judaism? Again, this will look a smidgen different in different movements. Um, but in general, the main steps are this. So first, you'd want to do some learning and practice living Jewishly. What does it mean? Looking at what does it mean to be Jewish? What are the, the major Jewish texts? How do I live a Jewish life that involves taking on Shabbat, Kashrut, um, different kinds of mitzvot, whatever it might be. Often that study and practice is done under the direction of a rabbi or a cantor um, or another teacher who can help guide a person along the way. Um, then once that whole process is ready and you're like, okay, I'm ready to do this. I want to be part of the tribe. The next steps, the formal steps, you go to a Beit Deen. A Beit Deen is a rabbinic court of three, although actually don't have to be a rabbi to be on a Beit Deen, um, but consider uh, knowledgeable practicing Jews um, who ask questions. And the types of those questions are going to vary based on the movement that you are converting through, but that, that you can have a good chat with a rabbi about that. Um, and then when you pass the bait bean, then you get to go to the, the physical and spiritual rituals that help change your state from non-Jewish to Jewish. And so that includes a dip in the mikvah, which is a ritual bath and reciting the Shema, the central Jewish prayer, that one that we cover our eyes for. And if applicable, circumcision or a hatafat dambrit, which is just drawing a little bit of blood to fill the, the same mitzvah. So those are the, the physical rituals. Um, and then you also get to choose a Jewish name for yourself, which is pretty fun. And an important thing to know kind of about this whole conversion process, um, both for people who are converting and if you're a Jewish person um, by birth who is welcoming in people to the community, one thing to know is that converts or Jews by choice, we do not treat them any differently from people who happen to be born Jewish. Once you're part of the tribe, you are always part of the tribe. So you mentioned uh, that people get to choose a name for themselves. Why do we have Hebrew names, especially, you know, Jews who have secular names? Why do they also need a Hebrew one? I think it's one of those things where, you know, we say like tradition. Um, we, you know, Jewish names were for a long time. That was your name. <laughs> That's what you had. But as Jewish communities and non-Jewish communities kind of began to, to merge and interact a little bit more, um, we started to see for convenience and just for being able to kind of interact in the rest of the world. Um, Jews also having having a secular name um, and then having their Jewish name. And so I think for many people, the idea of having a Jewish name is like, this is your this is your spiritual name. This is the name that God knows you by. And so this is the name that's used um, if you're called to the Torah. This is the name that goes on a tuba, marriage contract, all of those kinds of things. It's kind of like just kind of this uh, extra holy bonus name that you get. And Many people also, if they're praying for someone's healing or if they're remembering somebody who's passed away with by uh, reciting Kaddish on their yard site, we generally use their uh, their Hebrew name if we know it, because again, it, that's kind of like the name that God knows. And so I think it's kind of fun to be able to have two names. It's a way of acknowledging, look, there are two really important parts to my life. These are these are different identities that I carry and different ways that I'm known in the world. And so there's meaning behind often the, the Jewish names that are given to us or that we get to choose for ourselves, um, often carrying on traditions or memories of relatives who, um, who had great qualities um, that we want to be able to instill in the people who come after them, all these kinds of things. So I think it's, I just think it's great fun, um, even if it's not necessarily strictly necessary to have two names. I love that. So here's a question, and I think it's quite a good question because I imagine many people have wondered this periodically. 
when they see it. What does the abbreviation ZL stand for after names? And what other abbreviations are commonly seen in Jewish spaces and community like BH? So ZL after a name um, stands for Zichrono or Zichrona Libracha. May their memory be for a blessing. So ZL is used after the name of somebody who has passed away generally. Um, so it's kind of a nice, it's a it's an easy signal, it's an easy reference of saying this person who we love very much, they're not here anymore, but we, it's, it's also kind of an honorific. So that's what DL is. And other other abbreviations will kind of vary place to place. Um, BH is a common one. And that means Bezrat Hashem, which means with, with God's help. And so it can either be used kind of as a, a future looking like, please God, let this happen. Or like, thanks God, this did happen. So that phrase can kind of be used in either direction. You'll also sometimes see abbreviations up at the top of a piece of paper that says like, hey, by the way, this is sacred text. Don't just throw it in a garbage can. It goes in a Geniza, which is a special place that you put texts that have God's name on them or something like that. So some, if you see something up in the top, I think it's usually uh, Beth Samach Dalit. Yeah. If you see that up at the top of a page, be nice to it. Bithyata de Shemaya, right? It's Aramaic, yes. right? And a fun fact out there, and I just noticed this the other day, so that's why I'm bringing it up. If anyone uh, buys Moroccan oil hair products, yes! like this brand, have you noticed? Yes! They it have has a, it on it. Yep. In the top right corner Whoa. of the label, you will see this acronym. So just Whoa. a fun fact, if anybody out there has those products and look at them right now, you will see it. And what okay, does I'm it... I'm going to go to the grocery store and go look. <gasps> yes. Um, I'm not saying, <laughs> look, I have, I'm not judging the, the quality or price of the product. I am just saying... <laughs> Bisiata de Shemaya does show up on the label. And I think that's the first time I had actually seen a product here in America, a product here in America with that. You often see a hexer, like you discussed about Kashrut. Those symbols are fairly norm, but this one was a new one for me. Oh, that's so, so interesting. Yes, yeah. yes. So here's our next question. Also brought about Jewish prayer, and earlier you talked about the origins of the prayers, but in Jewish prayer services at certain points, there are certain physical actions that you do. You stand and you bow. Often you pray silently, but while still moving your lips. What is the significance of these actions during prayer? So again, this is one of those is going to vary place to place. So many of the many of the prayers, particularly in the Amidah or the Tefillah section, which is kind of the center of the prayer service, that's where a lot of the choreography tends to come in. And so certain prayers will have bowing at certain times, also in the barku, the call to worship at the beginning. There's a bow is kind of if you think about like back in the olden days, if you went to go see the monarch of the land, you would be in order to get, you know, not have your head cut off, you would be super deferential and polite, which would involve bowing. So the bow is not because we're worried about getting our heads cut off, but because it's a way of showing like an extra degree of respect usually for god and so thinking about that and also because the choreography and the getting our body involved like i was saying before it's a way of getting our whole self it's not just all about stuff in our heads it's also about being in our bodies so the choreography is a way of having our whole self invested in the prayer and also noting for ourselves particular moments um, that are extra important so a bow or standing would come at moments where like get that extra concentration in here because that's part of what we want to do is just to remind ourselves of what we're doing so it doesn't become too routine. Love that. 
And what are these special social and food aspects of Shabbat, like Oneg, Kabbalat Shabbat, and why is there always a Kiddush luncheon following Saturday morning services? <laughs> well, you know, Jews love food. Well, yeah, it's just part of it's just part of <laughs> part of the culture. It's just a fact, um, which is something that I love. It is just a fact. This is true, and a big part of why do they happen generally around Shabbat and holidays is because so Oneg Shabbat, the title that or the term that's often used for for a food gathering before or after services, the Oneg Shabbat means the joy of Shabbat or Shabbat joy. Um, and we're supposed to be happy on Shabbat. It's a great time. And how do we usually celebrate stuff? By eating, by sharing food with each other. And so uh, so that's a big part of the idea is to be able to gather in community and to feed each other, to support each other, to show that love. Um, that's a lot of why we have so many food occasions, particularly around Shabbat. It's just, it's just a good excuse um, to gather and, uh, and help each other enjoy and to be happy. What, so what is Kabbalat Shabbat? Because you mentioned it earlier on as well. So Kabbalat Shabbat usually refers to um, the first section of the Friday evening service. So it means literally receiving Shabbat. And so it's a set of psalms and usually leading up to Lakadudi um, that's like, extra singing to kind of get you in the get you in the Shabbos mood so um the this comes also from a Kabbalistic uh, mystical tradition where the idea was like you'd go out into the field and you'd be like ready for the sun to set and you'd be out there and like singing psalms and doing stuff and then like Kadudi and yay Shabbat um so that's that's the idea of Kabbalah Shabbat is like it's this extra little bit of fun exciting singing to get us into then the the evening service Mari for Shabbat Thank you. I have always wondered that. You go out, you <laughs> welcome the Shabbat, the Shabbat queen. You welcome her yes. in. It's her arrival. It's like a party for her arrival. It's the heralding <laughs> of her. Um, but for, for um, Kiddush Luncheon, I just want to mention that for some communities, they don't technically eat breakfast before completing um, the morning prayer. So that may be the first time when they have that Entman's um, donut that they had eaten that day. <laughs> Entmans, would you like to sponsor this episode? Um, yes, please. So let's move on to our next question. Why do Jews smash a glass at weddings? And I, I do understand that on other communities, maybe not Ashkenazi communities, sometimes the plate or other object. Mm. Why the smashing of the object at a wedding? So um, one of the things that is common to Jews, not only do we like food, at as many occasions as we can, unless we're supposed to be fasting, in which case we want all the food right after. Um, one of the things that's really common to uh, to different practices in Judaism is the co-mixture of joy and sorrow in different proportions, depending on <laughs> what the occasion might be. Um, because we never want to have like all the joy completely unrestrained, but also we don't want to be just wallowing in sorrow all the time. So a wedding, that's going to put us in the more joy than sorrow category, hopefully. So um, in this moment of great joy, even still then, we want to bring in just a tiny little bit of a reminder that the world is imperfect. Um, we can't, we're not always in this unrestrained joy mode. So smashing a glass um, usually is said to symbolize um, a reminder of the destruction of the temple. So we're always kind of holding on to something that's just still a little bit missing, something that's not quite complete. Um, and one of my favorite interpretations of this moment in the wedding is even as we're bringing in that moment of little like, oh, womp womp, when we smash the glass, um, there's also a note of hope here because part of the idea is that this couple 
through their through their unity, through their love, is going to be able to bring just a little more repair into the world to bring us closer to that point where even that smash collapse um, can have a chance of being whole again. Um, and so there's even even in the sadness, there's a note of hope. That's such a beautiful explanation. It really is. Um, so that was the end of our questions from the audience. But our we have one question from us is, what questions about Judaism do you commonly get as a rabbi? Okay. So one, I often get afterlife questions. Oh, we um, love those. We love We've talked about it questions. many times on the podcast. We love them. Which is good. That's, I assumed as much. So I won't go into it, but... Um, but just to say, usually my answer is just, yeah, we don't really talk about the afterlife so much. The idea is like, be a good person. Because I spend so much time teaching about Kala, I often get a lot of Kala related questions. And my favorite one is, why do we cover the Kala at the Shabbat or holiday table? Why do we? <laughs> Let me tell you. I'm so excited to tell you. So it's funny because sometimes people will come to me and say, when I was a kid, they used to say it so that the Kala wouldn't get embarrassed. That's the actual answer. It's so that the challah doesn't get embarrassed. So when we do, uh, when we bless food, there's kind of this hierarchy of blessings. And the first one, because bread is the main substance of, of our food and it can stand in for all the other blessings in a meal, um, hamotzi would be the very first blessing that you would say. However, because we also want to bless wine because we want to say kiddush over it, sanctifying the day, um, we have to do the wine first so that we can say the blessing. So that means we're going out of order. And so that the challah doesn't get upset about it, we cover it up. It's a sign of respect saying like, bread, we know that you normally get to go first, but it's okay. We're like right here. You're, right now you're just taking a nap. It's all good. We bless the wine. We uncover the, oh my gosh, look at this beautiful challah. Yay. And then we get to bless it and then we get to eat. And one of the things I really love about this is if we show that much respect for a piece of bread, call the homer, how much the more, sh more so should we be showing that kind of respect to each other? Oh, man. Um, so that's, yeah. that's my favorite question. <laughs> favorite I, I question, love that sir. because it is true. You know, we just, <laughs> sorry, but we have to sometimes hamotzi. It's not hamotzi supremacy. And I love the fact that if the challah doesn't see it, it didn't happen. <laughs> so, Rabbi Harper, this has been just a joy to ask you all these questions and hear your amazing answers. Um, we loved having you on the Vibe of the Tribe today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was great fun. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. Thank you to Rabbi Harper and to Ashley for co-hosting this episode and many others with me. Thank you to Dan for first inviting me to be a guest on this podcast and for allowing me to join him as a co-host for three years. Thank you to Jesse Ulrich, the founder of this podcast and also our editor. Thank you to our marvelous guests who explored so many facets of the Jewish experience with us. But most importantly, thank you to all of you out there for listening. In the meantime, you can keep up with us at jewishboston.com. Lahitra Oat, goodbye for now until we meet again.